Welcome to Definitely Maybe Agile, the podcast where Peter Madison and David Sherrock discuss the complexities of adopting new ways of working at scale. Morning, Peter. Uh, great to be back here, just having a chance to uh, chat with you about a couple of things. And I know this week's topic is something of a favorite, I think, for both of us, and that's the change approval board or change management board and what role they might play as uh, agility rolls into an organization. So maybe you want to start, just talk a little bit about what you see or what you hope to see as agility is adopted in larger organizations with well-established change approval boards. Well, good morning, Dave. Uh, and yeah, I, w- I would say that uh, that was a very polite way of putting it uh, compared to the way I was describing this to you uh, earlier, which was basically just kill the cab. We just want to kill it, totally, just kill it. But, uh, <laughs> That is that is somewhat uh, clickbait because I, I know we we both know it. So the the change advisory board's function in an organization needs to change from the function that it has today, and and that that function being uh, the gatekeeper of all change into production. And thou shalt not move forward unless you get sign off from these ten VPs to say yes, you are good to go, which is unfortunately very very ineffective. Slows down. Um, delivery and prevents us from being able to get the fast feedback loops that we need to do modern software development. So that's where CAB really needs to be killed in the sense of that function. But there's a, there's other roles that it plays, right? So Okay, but but let me just pick out a few things because I, I love the way you, we, we get into these conversations. And um, uh, before we even start talking about just killing the change approval board, in that formal definition that you've just described, in your experience, what is what does the change approval board often morph into in organizations where they they they're critical to getting something out of the door? So what I well what I've seen happen, especially over the years, is where you've had that traditional board. When an organization starts to adopt what we would call more agile um, practices, and especially um, like DevOps delivery practices, the change advisory board's role in every change becomes less less involved uh, because we start to shift that responsibility away from the, the change advisory board into uh, the actual teams and into the areas where they are much closer to understanding what the actual change is and accelerating that piece. So what, so what I, I've seen happen in organizations is that over time, uh, the development teams and managers stop turning up to cap. They, like they, they don't, because there's no need for them to do so. And uh, But there's still other types of changes which are discussed uh, typically at a, a larger scale where if say we're going to switch out the core networking switches and we we start to look at cab becoming more of a an information radiator and facilitating change and ensuring that change goes smoothly when we need to make very large complex changes which have a broad impact across many different areas and teams and this is where there's those those bigger differences between like what is the the type of role that cab now needs to play yeah. in an organization and it significantly changes well i wanted to pick up on that because what what i see a lot of the time is as soon as i hear in an organization that there's a formal process for whether it's release management change management that side of it is it doesn't take very much questioning or clarification or just getting to the right people to find out that typically there's a dual track there's a there's a track for 
like you say, the bigger changes, the things with high capital expenditure, which have some sort of a formal process, but invariably there's a backdoor somewhere along the lines which um, the, the, the delivery teams have found out what they can get through the backdoor and what has to go through the, the primary track. And I think that's really the, the opening, if you like, for recognizing that that change approval process has value. There are certain changes that we need to, as you said, radiate the information about, get an awareness of, prepare preparation in different parts of the organization for something significant. But at the same time, there needs to be a second track, which is much more a bit like the mammals versus the dinosaurs, right? You've got the mammals running around, they're quick and they're fast and there's small changes going through. And we still have the big monstrous changes that have to be coordinated. And it's a question of how do you bring those two together, perhaps? Yes, and then this is where we see a lot of the, the information and the value coming out of the DevOps space, where this understanding that in order to start to go fast and understand what we need to, what are the concerns that we're looking to capture with change? Why, why is it that we care about this at all? What are the reasons that we're going back and looking at this and feel that there's a need for approval? And if we start to unpick the layers, it, it, uh, it can come down to usually a couple of things or usually one of two things is what I see is that one is, hey, uh, we've verbatim decided to adopt um, ITIL and uh, in the in a way that uh, has said, oh, thou must have a cap. And if you actually look at the more modern ITIL practices, they've moved away from that kind of verbatim uh, language as well. Uh, there's so there's this piece where there's that side of it, uh, and the the other side of something where something at some point has gone horribly wrong because somebody put in a change without necessarily understanding, and it's broken things, and people are now scared. So it's like, oh, we can't do that here. Yeah. Uh, so well, I, we need to have this. I just wanted to say that that there's a really important piece, which is there's a there's a historical element to that 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 memory of you know. The, back in 1992, we tried to do this, and therefore now we have to go through all of these steps, um, which is which I, I always feel is a is an absolutely correct response at the time. You, you you know when something goes wrong, we need to bring a bunch of process in and checkpoints in just to learn from it, but with the intention of then easing those checkpoints and 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 those those approvals as we professionalize that as we get an understanding and build it back into the process. So I think um, if we kind of touch on some of these things, that the role that the board purportedly is there for, which is to validate that the changes have been done in the right way and that all of the necessary steps have been met, uh, fails significantly when more and more work is using the back doors to get things around. And so uh, you know, the, around the delays that those approval processes bring to the table. And so as that sort of shift is to more, um, you know, repeated, small modifications to systems, which are happening kind of all the time, what we want to do is take those approval processes and absorb them into the delivery practices. Like you say, this is what DevOps starts looking at just in terms of consistency of um, you know, configuration management and rollout and, you know, deployments and being able to move 
through that process. But there's there's a whole other section. I've had a number of conversations in the last couple of weeks that touch on things like accessibility and information security yeah. or DevOps, Dev Info Ops and or DevSecOps is the terminology, isn't it? Right. So there's a number of these different areas where those are absolutely critical, especially in today's world. There's a lot of things out there that can trip us up from a security perspective. And there, is, there are expectations that our customers have about the accessibility of our systems and continuity from one version to the next that we can see and be comfortable with. How do we get those practices into the delivery teams? Well, well there's a fascinating topic because uh, well, I, this is actually one of the things I talk about at conferences a lot. <laughs> so this, uh, this piece around, we have a set of, um, practices which can appear at first glance to be fairly orthogonal to the uh, actual delivery stream. So we're wanting to push changes through this pipeline. We want them to go as fast as possible uh, so that we can get the feedback to understand what our customers need so we can really accelerate our learning. Now, we want as few things as possible to get in the way of that. Now in comes audit and compliance and architecture and uh, we accessibility and all these other things that the organization needs to ensure happen uh, and uh, in for a variety of different reasons and, and a lot a lot of them are very good sound reasons we we need to ensure we're protecting our customers data we need to be sure that we've got a uh, that we're not going outside of the bounds of our standard architectural piece introducing components that potentially could uh, cause ramifications further down the line so we've got at least some kind of principles that we're managing and there, I think there's a whole set of conversations we can have around that topic uh, there's so there's this concept of how do you then start to develop a culture of safety, one where we're taking into account uh, at the delivery layer and aligning uh, our thinking and into both the ways that our platforms behave and the way that uh, our teams understand uh, have enough information at hand to make the right decisions at the right moments as to what we need to be able to do. And so that they're not having to stop, go out to some other body or um, say, hey, I've got to go to uh, call up compliance and say, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to take this application and put it into cloud because it'll accelerate my ability to do what I need to be able to do? Uh, but I don't necessarily know if I'm allowed to do that because of whatever compliance standards. And they, so they call up Bert in uh, compliance and Bert says, hey, and I'm not picking on anybody called Bert, I'm just picking a name and they, and uh, they come back and say okay uh, yeah we have something about cloud here's a 200 page document go find the standard it's in there somewhere so the your erstwhile delivery team those digs through all of that to find the compliance rule and then tries to work out how it applies to their context in the situation they're in and whether they can do the thing that they want to do so there's there's this gap there that needs to be closed in understanding how do we create that culture of safety into the delivery teams and there's a there's a few practices that um, that I take and put into place to try and uh, help with that and change the uh, nomenclature uh, the within the team so that they can start to talk about things in terms of a language which these safety organizations uh, understand as well so that there's stronger ties and better communication between yeah, them. I, I find, um, again, one of the conversations I had earlier in the week um, what struck me about that, and I think they really had a good handle on the need to, to 
dilute the influence of their change management process. They understood that if they're going to start deploying as frequently as the business needs, as the delivery teams are needing to, uh, what I was it was intrigued by was that they weren't defensive about that. And in some, you know, that first realization is that defensive. But, you know, thou shalt not pass. And I'm thinking, Lord of the Rings, thou shalt not pass peace there. <laughs> Instead of taking that role mm-hmm. was much more turning it around to say, how do we educate the delivery teams? And I thought the, the thing that struck me is that first piece is education. The first piece is when you're making, if, mm-hmm. if you're making these decisions, understand the consequences of these decisions. And here's some of that. And there's a, there's a very clear need for education there. And this is... One of the things I find fascinating about agile delivery is everybody becomes better at understanding all of the connections because the, those consequences kind of come back very, very quickly. That's part of what that delivery team has to pick up. But then this, the second thing is risk management. And the, the thou shalt not pass is a 100% all or nothing risk management piece. And, and I think there's a big part of the conversation to understand these areas here are lower risk. Maybe we've got some sort of way mm-hmm. of, of, of policing for this automatically in terms of our, our delivery pipeline. So maybe these are more um, amenable to continuous modification and change. And then there are other areas where risk is paramount. And we probably do need to bring the big boys in to try and figure that out. What's your understanding or what's your experience in breaking out that risk across or, or at least having the conversations about risk levels? Uh, so I, I typically, uh, when I'm helping organizations with this, uh, I start them from the, the point of view of, let's start with three that we can nearly always agree on. And with that is uh, internal non-PII data applications, ones that have no personal information in them that we can do what we like with, deploy. There's, there's the danger and the damage of anything going wrong with this is minimal. So we should be able to do what we like. That's a great place to experiment. And it's a, it's a wonderful place to learn. Uh, up for that is internal PII applications, ones which are not customer facing, but do have critical data in them. So we need to ensure that that data is being protected and managed. And then finally, the top tier, the ones that we want to make damn sure that nothing goes wrong with these are those externally facing PII accessing applications. And so those are the ones we want to make sure are fully protected and managed. So we're if we, if we take that kind of list um, and we say, okay, so if we understand that, what are our touch points and our processes and our organizational ways of managing it uh, around each of those different levels? So what, what are we allowed to do? And how do we know what we're dealing with in this particular moment? Are we dealing with which, less, which one of these levels are we actually dealing with? And uh, I've seen some very innovative ways of going about handling that. Uh, and in new, more modern infrastructures and greenfield, there's some really fascinating ways of handling that that uh, I could dig in. But uh, when we come into your more traditional organization, that's a hodgepodge of uh, bubblegum and sticky tape of a million different COTS applications that have been configured so much that they're really just internally developed applications at this point, and everything's stovepiped together and uh, direct IPs trying to unpiece that uh, can be a little bit more complex. So I found that starting with a simple, simplified model 
that gives those general categorizations. And, and then I, I, what I talk about at conferences is something called TACO, uh, Traceability, Access, Compliance, and Operations. As, and the purpose there is create a model um, that has something that's easy to remember, that everybody's going to be able to understand what it is, and then collaborate on creating an understanding of what's in that. And so instead of, as a delivery team, having to know that go through um, 3,000 uh, lines of compliance checks to validate whether these things I have or what things I have to do, I've now got a very easy way of saying, okay, what risk level am I working at? Have I taken care of all of these different concerns in these different areas? Uh, am I good enough to move forward now? And if I have any concerns, because what I'm looking at falls outside of that, I need to talk to my safety guys and find out um, what action I should take. But I've now got enough information, enough education, enough knowledge to be able to start to make some of those risk management-based decisions uh, closer to the rock face. So um, what you're, you're adding a lot of meat to the bones that I, I'm going to claim that I try to, to outline. But let's, let's just say I'm, I'm along for the ride for a part of it. But you're adding that bit about education and risk. So understanding what we're looking at and you, the, the taco piece allows me to, to kind of see or put context around the different roles and, and responsibilities that we have within that software and what, what it's doing. Um, we also talked about that risk management, which you're describing. But if I turn things around, the two things that kind of bubble up from that one, one is time. So what I mean by that is, if I see that that Lord of the Rings thou shalt not pass model, that's the last point at which a change can be stopped or vetoed. And that one is too late. What, what we really want to do is have conversations much earlier in the process so that we're involved in the creation of the ideas around solutions so that, for example, the, the sticky tape and, and sort of you know spaghetti type systems that we often end up with at least are beginning to be cleaned up or sort of separated out according to some of the principles you've described so there's the time piece but the the other one is the it's almost like being in a school and asking for permission from a teacher what i'm interested in with the with those compliance officers the regulatory folks who can kind of come in and they have the knowledge around these things how do you in include those in what the teams are doing rather than have them be the sort of, you know, yes, you can pass or no, you can't, but actually get them involved in what the teams are doing. Have you seen that happening? I, I have. And I, and I, my favorite model du jour of this is, uh, to, is this concept of the safety team that is aligned to the value streams that the delivery teams are um, involved in. So, and a safety team consisting of the expertise in whatever that value stream is delivering across uh, compliance and architecture and all of the different and security in the different areas. And their, their role is understanding what those levels of risks are for what the teams are doing. And they will engage much more frequently with those teams that are doing the higher risk things and much less frequently, like they'll, they'll look at what you're doing and say, Hey, if you're, um, you're like updating the cafeteria menu. Uh, I'll engage back with you um, in a quarter or two once because it's 
doesn't matter too much versus, hey, you're, you're making a change to our account management system online. Uh, we're going to be talking daily. <laughs> yeah. Now, that safety team, do you see those as being directly involved in solutioning? So in the second case that you're talking about there, clearly there's, there's a lot of risk. Um, if you're going to start modifying, you know, accounts and, and customer information or whatever it might be. So is that where you see the safety team being part of the solution? Mm -hmm. Yes. The kind of process or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right up front. Is, so they, they've got to be there to help uh, guide the, the, like the initial solution and help the, the team with any questions they have along the way. There are some beautiful uh, ideas around that in uh uh, Jonathan Smart's um, new book, uh, uh, BVSSH, uh, Better Value Sooner, Safer, Happier. Uh, and there's a really good um, YouTube video on uh, on the culture of safety that he did that uh, I'll uh, put into the comments here so that uh, people can find it. That would it. be great, yeah. Um, okay. So um, just, I'm just looking at the time and thinking, now is about the time for us to just wind down the conversation. So maybe in... Uh, we started with a very provocative, or I'm going to say you started with a very provocative. I have not implied that we should kill anything or anybody through the conversation that we've had. But maybe in the last couple of sentences, what is it that people should take away? If I'm now in a change approval board, I'm part of that body, what's the sort of conversation that I should be having to start moving in the direction we've been talking? I think for, for me, it's uh, it's along the lines of all the things we love to know and talk about around DevOps and Agile. It's the, it's the inspect and adapt loops. It's looking at uh, what what is the value that we're adding by doing this? How can we help facilitate change versus being the gatekeepers of allowing people through? How can we start to play a more strategic role in ensuring that we, we smooth the path to change because we know we need to make the changes so we can learn faster. And I think what I'm going to add to that, Peter, is uh, is one of the things that I see in terms of that inspect and adapt is recognizing those two tracks. Mm -hmm. That second track is often, first of all, not in line with what the purpose of the um, change approval board is. So one of the, the benefits there is a risk management piece to understand how much more work can we send through that second track, number one. But number two is, is there any remedial action? Is there any things that we have to do, maybe through education and understanding of risk and so on, some of the ideas that we've talked about for that second track to just make sure it kind of comes above the tabletop, if you like, and it becomes more compliant as we go forward. Yes. Yeah, and and I think there's all sorts of deeper conversations we can have on that too. So, so th thank you very much for sharing. I really enjoyed the conversation as always. It was a pleasure. Again, as always. Until uh, next time. Thanks again, Peter. You've been listening to Definitely Maybe Agile, the podcast where your hosts Peter Madison and David Sharrock focus on the art and science of digital, agile, and DevOps at scale. 